I'm Monica Olson. And I'm Jennifer Walsh. And you're listening to the Biophilic Solutions Podcast, where every other week we sit down with experts and thought leaders across industries in order to explore the innate connection between humans and nature and why we need nature to thrive. We truly believe that in order to tackle the global environmental problems we're facing, we as humans must reconnect to the natural world and come to a better understanding of how we fit in and how we are so interconnected. So in every episode, we'll interview new guests that help us uncover and highlight nature-based solutions to get us on a path to greater health, tackling climate change, and ultimately getting outside and connecting with nature. So let's get to today's episode. Hey, Jennifer. Hey, Monica. I'm so excited to be back with you and back to our regular podcast schedule. And I'm beyond excited for our interview today because we're talking with Richard Rhodes, a Pulitzer Prize winning author of more than 26 books, whose latest book is Scientist, E.O. Wilson, A Life in Nature. I know. I speak for both of us when I say we were absolutely captivated by this book, which delves into EO's life, his groundbreaking work studying ants and cataloging species, and his deep fascination with the natural world and our place in it. We should note that we recorded this interview with Richard a few weeks before Wilson passed away on December 26, 2021, at the age of 92, leaving behind such a rich legacy for future generations. We feel so honored to kick off the podcast with this interview because not only do we get to begin the new year discussing the life and legacy of E.O. Wilson and the way he popularized this notion of biophilia, but we also get to dive into Richard's perspective on all these things and more. Richard was an absolute delight to interview and also offers his own outlook on the importance of nature in our lives. So let's get to interview with Richard Rhodes. Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so honored to have you on our show. Thank you very much. I know there's a lot to get to, right, Monica? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Your book, Scientist, has just had me mesmerized. And what's been a lot of fun is beyond the book, Scientist E.O. Wilson, A Life in Nature, I've gone back and listened to some podcast interviews of yours on some of your prior books because you've been very prolific. Yes. Specifically, I think the one right before this was called Energy, which I haven't read the book, but the interview was wonderful. This was in 2018 with a gentleman. It was so interesting, the history of energy and what the importance it is to us. So I'm sure we'll get in there as well as you won a Pulitzer for the making of the atomic bomb in the mid 80s. And so I just... Love how you've brought Oppenheimer and a few other people into this book as well. It's interesting how these things converge. Yes, it's funny. My actual subject matter over the years, with some exceptions, has really been human violence Mm. in all its aspects. My brother and I, when we were just pre-adolescent, spent a couple of years with a stepmother out of Grimm's Fairy Tales. Oh, no. Fortunately, he had the courage at the age of 13 to go to the police. Fortunately, even though it was 1949 and there was not much in the way of social welfare in this country, they recognized that we were starved and sent us to an absolutely wonderful boys' home outside Independence, Missouri, where we learned to farm and learned how to be empowered every day with something. So ironically, considering the variety of subjects, there's a common theme. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Also, of course, because that is looking at the destruction of the natural world. Yeah. And I think his work 
the thing that struck me very much, and I actually just listened to an interview of Ed Wilson on Vox that was just happened a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago. And what struck me in the book and also with the interview is we, and I'll speak for Jennifer and ourselves and our world that is very focused on biophilia, kind of place maybe that on E.O. Wilson a little bit more than he even speaks of it. I was fascinated that that is very much an aspect that he cares about, the love of nature and the belief that that might be genetically encoded in us. Mm-hmm. But really his work is, and I knew there was the ants in biology, but it's so much broader. Mm-hmm. And so your book put that into context for me personally. And so I really appreciated the much deeper, more layered storytelling of him versus us as the father of biophilia, if you will. I'm so glad you said that, Monica, before you say anything else, Richard, because I thought I knew of E.O. Wilson, everything we've read and we've studied, but your book really layered so many more attributes to what an individual he was and how deep his interest in love for life was so profound to me. So I'm so glad you brought that up, Monica, because it really was. Your book really kind of put so much out there for me to really dive deeper into. Well, I think I only gradually came to understand the depth of challenge that there is in the world today to salvage the species that are rapidly going extinct. But before that, and, and as part of that awakening in him, from being pretty much a pure scientist to someone who had a larger Jane Goodall-like range, of, mm-hmm. that's the way I think of it in particular, because they're very similar in some ways. Biophilia was a part of that, was belief that it's ingrained in us, even genetically, to be attached to this. Well, of course, because we're part of nature. However much we've surrounded ourselves with artificial constructions, we're still natural beings. Yeah. We find that out when we're ill or when we're confronted with an epidemic, Mm -hmm. as we've recently. Suddenly it kind of comes back into context. But Ed was particularly interested in reminding people how rich and deep and beautiful the natural world is. Scary, too, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That? Yeah. But it's as if we never lost that ancient sense, a pre-ancient sense. Mm. We live in a world surrounded by other beings like ourselves. Mm-hmm. He did bring biophilia into the center of his work. It's just that as he came more and more to realize what urgency there was to saving the species that are left in the world, when he discovered, as I know you know, that the estimate that had been common that we were losing one species a year was false. Mm -hmm. And then in fact, we're losing one species a day. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's worth noting. And repeating that we tend to not understand what we can't see. And I really have been taken by his idea. And and obviously, he spoke of it in this recent interview, but all along his path of how do we catalog and how do we go out and find the species and his multiple attempts at that. And I liked that he had gone from, I think in your book, it says something about scientists can be voices crying in the wilderness, yes, which I enjoyed versus yes. he took it to a more activist stance. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, he tried in the 90s to get government support for 
the education of 50,000 field biologists a year. Wow. And it was rolling along, and then somebody in Congress decided this was a waste of good money and killed it. Yeah. It's at that point that he began thinking, how else can we get at this? And realized that there were millions of species in the world, particularly the little ones, the little creatures that mm-hmm. really make the world. Yeah. That have never even been identified. Yeah. Studied. And out of that came his idea that we needed to finish the work that Linnaeus began mm-hmm. in the 18th century of simply cataloging everything. And that became something that everyone could take part in. It wouldn't just be a government grant that was precarious as it And he never gave up, right? It was just like, it's so interesting to me that no matter what, he knew what he wanted to do. He didn't know exactly how it was going to turn out, but the fact that he never gave up decade after decade after decade, knowing that why would we go to another planet if we don't even know all the species on our own? And that just rang through to me. Like I thought, exactly. Like How can we even consider going somewhere else if we don't even know all the species on our own planet? It's it's kind of absurd (laughs) in in my own mind. I think at one point he points out that if a Martian arrived in, on Earth, the first thing it, it would do is catalog the species. Yes. We haven't even done yet. Yeah. Right? So he sees that then as something. And out of that came one of the most remarkable productions of his work, which is mm-hmm. the Encyclopedia of Life. Yes. For everyone to see, everyone to participate in. And there is one page, as it were, often with extensions that go to other sources for each species that's been identified, including human beings, giving the Latin name, giving their characteristics, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So that has been building over the years since around the year 2000. And if anyone wants to check it out, they'll be dazzled by what's there. All these different creatures presented in their various ways. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that we think of if we can educate people that we are innately drawn to nature and give them a bit of the why and then get them out there. It's the beginning of saving it, cataloging it, discovering it. But just even Jennifer does so much work on mental health and nature. How do you give people the why? Mm-hmm. And I think they need that. And I think, unfortunately, they need to know it's personal, whether that impacts their mental health or for a corporation, it impacts their bottom line because their employees are healthy and happier. Sometimes we have to talk in economics mm-hmm. um, and health benefits in order to save these precious species. It's an interesting way to how do you bring people into the conversation? Jennifer, it's really interesting that you move people or try to into the outdoors. I think some of the worst human beings in the world are those who have no connection with the natural world at all. Who are all <laughs> in their places and counting their money and <laughs> Yes. Uh, and being here in New York City, let me tell you, it's not always easy to get people outside. They just and especially in the months where it's colder and they just say, Why? Why would I want to go outside? And I say, How can you not? <laughs> How can you not? The city mm-hmm. is built around this absolutely wonderful park through all the pressure to put buildings on it and put various things on it in the best of intentions on the part of donors has managed to keep this space. It's very meaningful that it's there. And I think it's very meaningful to the people who go there. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. 
Goldman was a friend of mine, and one of the things that he really was frustrated by is that because of his celebrity, he couldn't go outside and take a jog. Mm. He had to have a pedal bicycle in his apartment in New York where he could work out for 45 minutes. He'd come out of that room in his bathroom just soaked in sweat. He'd watch the news and all, but it frustrated the hell out of him that he couldn't go out into the park anymore. Yeah. Other reasons he lived in Connecticut most of the time. Yeah, right, right. He did move. That is a point that somehow we've created nature as an other. And even, unfortunately, our society then hones in on these celebrities and wants to know what they're doing instead of really letting them just live their lives and walk the park. I do think that it was interesting that his work on sociobiology, I was fascinated not really knowing much about it. And obviously there was like a lot of controversy around it because he was proposing that our behavior could be genetic, which I think is really interesting and obviously came up against some backlash from anthropologists. But I really enjoyed that part of the book, the different people that came to his defense, including Including, I thought it was fun, is Shagnon, who was a professor of mine at Santa Barbara. Right. This is a gentleman, a professor, Jennifer, who studied a tribe, the Yanomamo, in the Amazon. And he was, Shagnon was just like so amazing. And it was like the <laughs> to take. And he was wow. a washbuckling right. field biologist. I mean, he was fascinating. But I thought it was interesting that he sprang to E.O. Wilson's defense. We'll be right back after a quick break. Jennifer, guess what's coming up and where we get to hang out. What's that, Monica? The (laughs) Biophilic Leadership Summit. It's back this March 24th through 26th. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to see you in person again. It's been way too long. I know, me too. And we invite all our listeners to come to this year's summit. We're going to be exploring biophilic placemaking and how we use biophilic principles to promote health, happiness, and vitality in public spaces. Yes. And I was just reading over the schedule, which I'm very excited about. There are so many great speakers and panels. And when you get to join us, I'll be doing a nature walk and moderating a wonderful panel on activating community spaces with two incredible women, an architect and an urban planner. So this summit is put on by the Biophilic Institute and Biophilic Cities Project. So you can also come meet all of the leading experts in biophilia. And in addition to all incredible multiple presentations, we're going to have all sorts of great farm to table meals, plus cocktails, some book signings and lots of networking, which is always a favorite. And it's going to be at your and my favorite place, the Inn at Serenby. Yep, that's one of my favorite places, as you know. So join us in Sarah B for the 6th Annual Biophilic Leadership Summit from March 24th to March 26, 2024. And you can learn more about the summit and register today at biophilicsummit.com. That's biophilicsummit.com. We hope to see you there. We'll see you soon. Bye, Jen. Bye. Well, when Ed was attacked by the anthropologists as well as some Marxist biologists, basically, who didn't like Mm -hmm. the idea that humans had any limitations because (laughs) Marx decided to transform everything. Mm -hmm. We couldn't do that if we were dragged down, as it were, by our genetic heritage. Mm -hmm. 
they didn't like it at all, and they really worked on it. But Shagnon, after all, was someone else who'd been attacked for the radical side of his views. Mm-hmm. And saw in Ed's, someone in the literature said, Ed Wilson's something of a bomb thrower. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> by that, I think they meant he's willing to step into mm-hmm. and risk proposing new ways of thinking about things, based and anchored in enormous research. He's working right now in his early 90s on a very rich, large, complex sort of synthesis of ecology. Mm-hmm. Human aspects in its natural, in its other creaturely aspects. And he told me the first thing he did was pull out every article he found in two of the leading world science journals, Nature and Science, mm-hmm. for the past 10 years that mm-hmm. had any relation whatsoever to this subject of ecology. Mm-hmm interrelation of species and within species ecology. So he's going to do an overall synthesis of all of this, and I'm sure he's going to step on toes. But it's an aspect of the richness of his work that he has kept growing and growing and widening and widening his range as time goes on. I think it's so interesting you're saying that because what I loved also about your book was also the fact that you highlighted that he's also not only so deep in his research and so profound in his love of what he's doing, but he sounds like he's really, really funny. <laughs> like I, I don't know, for some reason, I never thought of it. You know, Wilson as someone, but your book really kind of honed in us like little, had a funny, didn't he name an ant after, what's it called? Harrison Fordye or something? Ford needed some money to one of Ed's programs. So he named one of the ants that he first identified after Harrison Ford. He does things like that. The funniest story he tells, and I won't tell it at length, but just quickly, was when he realized that when ants die within a colony, they're usually left, the body's just left wherever it stopped for two or three days. And since ants colonies have workers who spend all their time cleaning out the place. It puzzled him why. So he looked into it a bit and realized that the problem was that because they have rigid exoskeletons, the odors of decay weren't exiting their bodies until enough pressure built up to get through all the little cracks. Oh, wow. But once he got going and he worked all that out, he started taking some of this juice of decay from a dead ant and putting it on a live ant. And then the workers would come running over, pick up the live ant, run it out of the colony and throw it in the trash pile. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> and get stuff off and generally sort of look puzzled for a while and then go back in. But it wasn't sufficiently clean. So the, the worker ants would pick it up and throw it on the pile again. And wow. Three days before the poor thing could finally. <laughs> this is science as comedy. <laughs> yeah. Really- and there's more than a little of that in, in the stories he tells. I mean, let's face it, he's been out in the natural world over and over again, and you encounter things. Mm-hmm. That's what getting out is about, really. Mm-hmm. My wife loves to walk every morning, and she's now got three crows that follow her around. Oh, my she, gosh. <laughs> crow sounds, and their crows are very smart. And they're, yes. what is this, this large pipe that's making crow noises. So wow. she's got a little coterie of crows that walk around with her. Okay, that's delightful. <laughs> <laughs> when you're out in the world, right? Yeah, yeah. so true. 
Yeah, I think the relationships with the birds. Have you are, are you aware of Richard Louvre, who wrote Last Child in the Woods? No, I don't know. Oh, so he, you would, you two would really enjoy each other. Richard started a foundation that's Children in Nature Network, and he coined the term nature deficit disorder, which you may have heard. No, wonderful. Mm, Yeah, he's phenomenal. We'll have to introduce you guys. And he, his most recent book is about animals and the connection that we have to animals and the importance of that. And so I know Jennifer over the pandemic befriended a couple pigeons, right? Or they were, were they doves? Doves. 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 And Barbara. And Sue's and Margaret and Roberta. <laughs> I call them the ladies of the sill. <laughs> My windowsill. <laughs> but I think that's biophilia, right? Everybody's got dogs and cats. Why is it, you know, that just proliferated? Why did everybody suddenly wake up to nature during the pandemic? They knew it was healthy for them. Why are homes with views more valuable? It's because of nature. All of that, I believe, ties back to biophilia. And Ed Wilson and his work is just incredible. Tell us a little bit about how did you find him? Like with all the it work. Was the ants, it was the ants, wasn't it? Was it the ants? No, it actually wasn't. How did you find him as a topic? I was writing an article. I did a lot of magazine writing before I got full-time writing books. And I was writing an article for a magazine on the question, why do men rape? And I was puzzled if there was any genetic component. Interesting. There was any genetic advantage to this behavior. I no longer think so, by the way. But at the time, I wanted to talk to someone. And Ed's book on sociobiology had just been published, and I had read it with great interest. So I called him up, went to Harvard to visit him. We hit it off because we had somewhat similar childhoods. Ed was somewhat not abused, certainly, but neglected. Mm-hmm. And it led him, in his case, out into the woods. I was living in a city, so it led me to the city junkyard where I got interested in technology because that's what junkyards are full of. So in a funny way, we had a connection and we hit it off very quickly. One of the things he did was to take me in and show me Kinsey, Alfred Kinsey's collection of beetles. Kinsey collected humans. He collected beetles and he had a collection of four million beetles. Beatles. Wow. Um, wow. Little pins in a room, drawer after drawer after drawer. Four million. <laughs> that was just down the aisle, the, the hall from Ed's office in the Harvard Museum of Natural History. So we found an affinity and stayed in touch over the years. And I finally found a publisher interested in publishing a biography of him. And really, just in time, I realized he was not the youngest guy in the world, nor am I, for that matter. And if we were going to do a biography together, we'd better get it done. Right. I want to jump to something else, though, because it's part of what we're talking about. His conflict with Jim Watson, with mm-hmm. James Watson, mm-hmm. the co-discoverer of the structure of DNA yep. and its application to the genetic code. There is a classic example of what we're talking about. Watson, in the thrill of the discovery, and it was a profound discovery. Wilson always gives him full credit for one of the deepest discoveries in the history of biology. Mm-hmm. He and his partner, Francis Crick. But when Watson came to Harvard, the same year Ed did, 
Watson just was convinced that they could just get rid of all of these field biologists. Mm-hmm. He called them stamp collectors. He said, we don't need them. And the field biology part of the Harvard department was a little dated. Professor had his creature, and he organized his lectures and everything around that creature, when in fact there are all sorts of longitudinal structures that need to be followed through. What's similar to what? How are ants related to beetles? How are ants related to humans? And so on. So Watson basically just mistreated everybody all around him. He was just a total bastard. Ed at one point called him the Caligula of biology. (laughs) (laughs) Because Ed understood and truly believed that on the one hand, certainly field biology could use some more mathematically structured scientific work. But on the other hand, there are things that you discover about a whole living organism that Mm. you discover just by structuring its DNA. They're at a different level of complexity and they're separate in a way. So he fought Watson and Watson fought him for about 10 years until mm-hmm. kind of the way religions do when there's a theologic difference between them. They split into two departments. <laughs> I think the Quakers got up to about 30 or 40 different <laughs> Because somebody would give in on their basic principles, of course. Mm-hmm. So eventually they reconciled and they became good friends. Watson is still living, but I don't think he's in particularly good health. Ah. And he's made some stupid statements lately that have gotten him roundly condemned. Ah. Talking about women and they're Ah. not being right as men. I mean, Mm. stupid 19th century comments. Right, right. Yeah, so, but we all get old and say stupid things. So. (laughs) (laughs) So, first of all, I love that you, the book title, just scientist. How are you feeling about the impact of the book since it's come out? You know, you had a wonderful, you know, covered by the New York Times, but like, how is it being received personally for you? Like, do you feel like people are coming to this awareness? One. And then two, I wanted to just dive in on scientists in general. Yeah. Yeah. And science and where they stand in the world today. I haven't seen any visible action on the part of my book whatsoever. And I think that's because, as with many other books this fall, it was delayed for weeks. Mm-hmm. They couldn't get any paper for the yep. photo inserts. Mm-hmm. So it was published about three weeks later than it was supposed to be. Interesting. And that means it missed a lot of book reviews. Sure. Interesting. It's only had a few reviews so far when normally you get reviews all over the country and in every newspaper. So it hasn't had much impact yet among friends, of course, and people who have heard it. People seem to be delighted with it, and I'm happy to see that. I mean, at this point, it's my 26th book. If I haven't learned how to write a book by now, (laughs) it's a line of work, you know. Well, I know we have a wonderful bookstore at Serenby called Hills and Hamlets, which is an independent. And Josh is the owner. When I went to go pick it up there, he said it's been selling quite well. Like he had picked it up and knowing that he admired EO, but didn't really know, expect it to sell. But it's been doing really well in our community. So there's at least one bookstore that it's selling well at. Uh, I, I think it will because people do know who he is. Yeah, I, yeah. Dazzling cover with that wonderful. Uh, cover it's so book. great. Oh, it's How so could you not pick up that book if you want? It's so good. I know. Uh, it's just. I'll formally invite you to come do a book signing at some point in the new year if you're down this way. Ever? Well, I guess you're in Seattle now, right? Yes. 
Yeah. But we can talk about that if you're traveling to Atlanta or the Southeast. I mean, it would be so fun to have you and well, host yeah, you. And Zoom, so we could do this. We do too. have Zoom. We could do that too. We could do a whole book club. Yeah, and then the good. other side of it is a scientist. I think the idea of science and truth and people doing field work and work in the lab is so important. Do you think that scientists have been forgotten or not held up anymore? I think that science is really taking a hit from this whole bizarre movement against rationality mm. in this country and in other countries too. It's really, I don't know where this is going, but it's not a happy development. Mm. When you hear people saying, I don't need to be vaccinated and because it's a government plot or whatever. Right. I mean, We've got two, 300 years of history of vaccination, and there's no question that it's one of the most important developments in science. Mm -hmm. People don't remember, I guess, what it was like. I do. What it was like when polio would emerge mm -hmm. during summer. Us would be told to stay home. Don't go to the community swimming pool. Don't go to the yeah. movies. Don't yeah. meet with your friends. And someone you knew would suddenly be in an iron lung and paralyzed and die. It was a horrible, horrible experience. And that was just one of all of the horrible sources of natural disease organized death in the world. It's been a huge, huge transformation. And I think it's only because of that transformation that people have, if you will, the cockeyed privilege of saying, we don't need to vaccinate our children. And sadly, of course, this is a potentially lethal disease. Mm -hmm. 93%, I think the number is, of people who are dying of COVID are people who aren't vaccinated. Mm -hmm. You think that would be enough evidence? Right. So, but science, science has always been somewhat paradoxical in that on the one hand, it brings us miracles, as we used to think of them. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, as one of the great physicists once said, it participates in the gradual removal of our prejudices. And he means things like the belief that the earth was at the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. One of the first things that happened with Galileo, the belief that we are a separate creation, something that happened with Darwin that gave way with Darwin, but is still controversial in religious mm -hmm. One by one, science has taught us not how we'd like the world to be, but how it actually is. Mm -hmm. And that has brought us great benefits. But at the same time, it's kind of reminded us that we're creatures among the other creatures. Mm. Some celestial transformation that is different from all the rest of us. Ed says at the end of one of his, what I think is probably his best book for general readers on human nature, yeah. he says... When we solve all our problems, when we've cured all the diseases, when we've got control of violence and war, we're going to wake up one day and realize that we have no purpose mm. as species beyond the reproduction of our own kind. Mm. All the other species, that's going to be a spiritual crisis. Mm -hmm. so there's this paradox that I think people who are afraid of science, afraid of government, are participating in that's a very old one, in fact, which is, well, you're doing a lot for us today, but why are we here? What are we for? Uh, we don't like your answers. They're not, <laughs> yeah. they're not as grandiose as we want them to be. Right. We don't want to be like the little creatures of the world. 
We are. Fortunately, and this is the other side of it, I like to say the, the natural world is fractal. Fractal mm -hmm. is a term from geometry that mm -hmm. talks about things that have more than one level of organization. And what that basically means to me is the natural world is equally complex at every level. Mm -hmm. why it's so rich and wonderful to be a part of, to get outdoors with. Because there's always something new to see. There's always a surprise to see. Those crows following my wife down the street it was just a total delight. Who yeah. are these little guys? What are they doing? What does that tell you about them? Yeah. What does it tell you about me? What's going on here? Yeah. New friends. So it's as always with anything, I think, in the world. I sometimes think of writing history as mostly is about writing about the unintended consequences. Ah. Building a bomb that would end World War II, mm -hmm. a weapon that ended all world-scale war, but sure. at the same time made it possible to destroy the whole world. So that's the kind of surprise I mean. Mm -hmm. I think it was interesting, too, what you brought up that I would have never have known. The fact that when I think about scientists or data or research, I think like you brought up in the book that it was always kind of, no, it's mine. I'm not going to share it. <laughs> you can't have it. I'm not going to share it with you. And here comes E.O. Wilson saying, I'm going to create the Encyclopedia of Life, and it's going to be open to everyone. Everyone should know. And I just thought, how profound is that statement? Talk about like throwing a bomb out there when everyone else is saying, no, 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 it's mine. And E.O. Wilson wants to share his discoveries with the world. I mean, what a beautiful statement yeah, and sentiment to who he is. That's lovely. I hadn't thought about it that way. But yes, you're right. He's kind of, let's face it, like most academic fields, science has guarded itself with complex language and also mm -hmm. of little tricks and locks and latches so that it's hard to <laughs> Yes. You're not one of the cognoscenti who's been initiated properly. <laughs> so and yeah. I noticed, for example, the scientists who are popularizers are usually put down for popularizing. Right. That was mm -hmm. Sagan. That's even been true to some degree of that. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that's, that's it, right? Too. Yeah, that he's, had, he's been opening up science to the rest of us. Yes. Yeah. Right. I think that's the way to go, right, is saying it's for everybody. But, that you know, in thinking more of an, an abundance mindset than a... Um, Fear-based or lack yeah, fear -based or fear-based yeah. or narrow. And I felt like there was a lot of optimism in this book. And is that just part of your nature, Richard? Is that, is that genetically encoded in you, your optimism? <laughs> <laughs> no, it hasn't always been my perspective. But you know, as you get older, it seems to me you have two choices. One is that you become the guy who says, get off my lawn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in a handbasket, or, or you take a more optimistic perspective and realize that you were young and optimistic once, and why should you give that up because you're old and facing death? Mm -hmm. and that way, he really does think, I mean, he's already made the leap. That's what I mean, this quote I gave you about down the road after we've solved all these problems, mm -hmm. what, the, what the public discussion is today, that the world's about to end. That. He thinks we'll get past this particular catch in the development of our lives and of our relationship to the world. It will require work. It will require change. Mm -hmm. He's leading in that in every way he can think of. But at the same time, he sees us as moving on from there. And I do too. 
if we've managed to keep our bombs in the basement for as long as we have, that's a good start. It's been yeah. 80 years now. And the people who built them thought that we would blow them up by 1950 and destroy mm-hmm. the world, because what else would we do? That's what we'd always done. Mm-hmm. So he's optimistic, and I am too. And I mean, after all, I have grandchildren in their 20s, and they're just the most marvelous people. My Lord, I adore them. They're so bright. They're so well-educated. They're so excited. So we're going forward. We're all sitting smiling. Look at us. Yeah, (laughs) and I think that that's it. It's how do you expose the ideas to people so that they can make decisions and be thoughtful about it without being dogmatic? And I think that that is always a challenge is dogma, right? How we're sorting everything out. And I recall, and I think it may be one of the later chapters, I don't know if it was a quote or you had said it, that one of the scientists and I was EO saying, Listen, whether we go into authoritarianism or this person wins an election or we get to the Mars or not or whatever, like those all things will kind of work themselves out. If we don't save these species, they're gone. The other things could be cyclical or be managed. Mm -hmm. If the species are gone, they're gone. There's no bringing those back. That is why he settled so specifically on identifying and thereby. Mm -hmm serving what we have, because as you say, even if we had a horrible dictator in our country, seems to me we almost did, but that's mm-hmm. another subject. Uh, <laughs> it's another podcast. A <laughs> hundred years and things will change. Mm. But a species takes a million years or more to evolve to what it is. Mm. And that means, as you say, when they're gone, they're gone. Yeah. That's why he's so, so vividly determined, why he's moved into this particular area of concern, because there are plenty of others, saving the rainforest, da-da-da. But again, those things can be recycled, if you will. Mm -hmm. You can't recycle a particular species of creature. No. Can I ask a question, too, because I'm reading the book and learning about all the letters that he and Irene did. So did he have all these letters from Irene all this time? Or like, how would you get all the information? Did he have lots of books? Because I was just so fascinated by everything that you shared in the book. It was so interesting. Ed told me at some point in the past that he'd kept every letter. That, that wow. the, They were just about to get married when he got this fabulous opportunity to spend nine months wandering across the South Pacific, collecting ants in places where they'd never been collected before, little islands in the middle of the South Pacific and so on, and Australia as well. So he had to think of a way to keep Irene attached, if you will, mm. And I'm sure she was equally concerned about his staying attached. Mm-hmm. All the Nazi maidens and so forth. Go get <laughs> so they made a pledge that they would write each other every day. And by and large, they did. And I knew of those letters and I thought, I've got to have those letters. Ed is immensely private about his personal life. Mm-hmm. The Review in the New Yorker criticized me for not writing about his family life after those early years with the letters. He wouldn't tell me anything about his Interesting. Mm-hmm. So, what I, so I told him, I want to do your biography, but I can't do it unless you give me those letters and let me quote from them. And so one day this envelope arrived in the mail. I live in the West Coast. He lives on the East Coast. And in it, all wadded up and bent around. You know how an old question. Yes. Here were all the letters. Wow. Wow. 
I copied them all. I had them transcribed. And wow. they not only the, the story of this wonderful love, which lasted all of their lives. Mm -hmm. Irene just died about two months ago. Oh. Seven. Wow. Together all the way back to the early mm. night. She well, life and they were always together throughout that life. But, so I had them transcribed and there was that story, but there also was this journal day by day, mm -hmm. his travels of his discoveries of the people he met. And of, he was in one island and he met the French couple who were the model for the planter in oh, the yeah. Pacific. That was so that neat. Was so that was so interesting. I mean, Just... who lived on an island nearby. Yeah. <laughs> So, because James Mishner, who wrote that story, had been posted there as a naval officer during World War II and had known the same family. So that was the kind of wonderful story that came through from these letters. I wish there had been more, or I wish I'd known more about the rest of their lives together, but it wasn't available. So mm -hmm. I found his work. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it drew me in to have that personal, it's almost a, this romance story mm -hmm. that drew me in. And then all of the relationships that he had over the years and the intersection and who he admired and just the time he lived or is living, but lived through is just incredible. I mean, Margaret Mead took him to dinner and he was, you know, knew again, we, you know, when he was being attacked by the. Yes, yes. Walked into the room. She was carrying a six foot post by then that was her cane pounded <laughs> it on the floor and said are we about to vote to censor a work of science what sort of people are we and everyone was shaken up and then <laughs> the vote never happened yeah yeah so great stories yeah, yeah great stories well and, 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 and over the years i've written about have been people who have collected together their life stories and have told them many times they're always wonderful, even if they're sometimes a little polished around the edges in ways that didn't happen. But these things that Ed told us did happen, and they're in the book. Wow. Absolutely wonderful. So, Richard, what's next for you? Are you working on another subject? I am, and it's really very exciting. I'm writing a book about the largest machine in the world. Wow which is called the Large Hadron Collider. Oh, yes. A, a particle accelerator ring mm -hmm. 70 miles in circumference. Wow. Underground across the border between Switzerland and France, and which is the machine that was used to discover what I guess one of the scientists called the God particle, which yes. is sort mm -hmm. of but the Higgs boson, which was the particle that gives matter its mass, its weight. Hmm. It's a pretty special particle. These giant machines, and they get bigger every year. CERN, mm -hmm. the, the scientific organization that built the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, is now going to build one 100 miles around. Wow. wow. The LHC is just going to be one of the starter rings because they used their old ones. They built them up from small to larger to larger, each time getting more energy and therefore finding more new particles. is going to be just a ring to get things going. And right. there are four of those already. And then it will be pumped into this 
vacuum tube a hundred miles around <laughs> and swipe with magnets faster and faster and faster. Well, they're already managing to reproduce the energy within one trillionth of a second of the Big Bang that started the universe. Mm -hmm. So if this next one is going to be, what, five times bigger, they're going to be able to get to a fraction of a trillionth, almost back to the Big Bang, to wow. see where it all came from. This is what I mean about science. Yeah. The whole universe, as we know it, started with one infinitesimally small particle. Hmm. It suddenly blew up one day. Nobody quite knows what happened, where that came from. But with it came time. Yeah. With it came gravity. With mm -hmm. it came all the forces. And then as it kept expanding, it made constellations and galaxies mm. and stars and us and mm. the whole kit and caboodle, if you will. So, yeah, yeah. So it's not surprising. This is, of course, a very expensive business. Yes. Mm. The one, the Large Hadron Collider was a $20 billion project. Oh, God. Right. And, and the particle they were looking for, it's basically done. Of course, it can still be used to do a great deal of science. Sure. But for that original goal, it's done its job. So mm. they have to build a bigger one. It seems so odd, I think, to people who aren't in science. And yet, if there's anything we certainly, as creatures, want to know, it's who we are, what we're mm -hmm. made of, where mm -hmm. we come from. And here's the answer to that. I have to throw in one other thing, because every time I think of it, it knocks me out. There is some theory that has some support that this original particle just came out of a vacuum because of some very complicated quantum physics uh -huh. that didn't exist or existed only potentially, and mm -hmm. one day winked into existence and then took off. That would mean that we came from nowhere, if you will. We started out, <laughs> I love that, this little thing, this infinitesimally small thing packed with all the, all the future of, of yeah. all, all of our lives. That's so beautiful. And I mean, show me a religion that can keep up with that. Uh, that's the way I feel about it. Religions are wonderful, and I'm glad there are 100,000 of them in the world, as there are. Yep. If I have a religion, it's science. Hmm. Yeah, and we really talk about nature as our yes. religion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. You know, and I think that's a whole other podcast, and you touch on that in the book as well, about codifying you know, social rules. And I had listened to another podcast recently about philosophy and the making of the state and how the state then suppresses violence yes. because we have an organization mm -hmm. that can, the government or the state can then mediate between the people to then lessen the violence. And it's sort of a whole nother fascinating thing. But I think that Wilson and Chagnon talk about that of like, again, in ecology and biology, where does that tendency come from? Mm. And then how does it get organized? Yeah, well, of course, the usual argument is that as the middle class arose, it didn't want to have to spend its time looking over its shoulder all the time carrying a knife. Yep. It wanted to do business. And the deal was the king got the tax money from them, and he supplied them with safety. Yep. I've got all both the deals with that subject called Why They Kill. We mm. might sometime. But I described the decline in violence in the West in the Middle Ages 
when homicide rate in rural England was like 54, 54 per 100,000, which is about the same as inner city Detroit. Mm. You know, violent world. And it declined over the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries until today in the United States, where we think we're living in the midst of enormous violence. We're not really. Mm -mm. Our homicide rate in the United States today is 5.4 per 100,000. Whereas in a country like Papua New Guinea, back before they had any kind of government, when it was all just small tribes, their homicide rate was 1,000 per 100,000. Wow. That's mind-blowing. You could see just how mm -hmm. much control over violence, mostly because of access to courts of law. Right, right. And so those courts of law, the Australians, I think, came in. You, you sue them. Yeah. <laughs> if you win the suit, they pay you. So <laughs> much nicer. <laughs> much nicer, much nicer. Well, Richard, thank you so much for your yeah. time. Thank you for saying yes to us. Yes. <laughs> Just yeah. We could do this for another few hours, but you know, <laughs> yeah. we could be around for all day just to chat more, but maybe that's in the future. We can all get together. Well, it'd be fun to talk about this violence thing because. Yes. I think I that'd be very interesting. American scientist who has definitively figured out how you make people violent. Wow. And how therefore you could help them not reverse it. Yeah. Interesting. interesting. Okay. For another time. Yeah. Yes. yes. Thank, Thank you. you, Richard. Thank you for your time. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Goodbye. All I can say is, wow. <laughs> I know. I just absolutely loved our conversation. And I feel like we barely scratched the surface of all things we could have talked about with Richard. Absolutely. And to that point, there are a couple things that really stood out to me. The first is the idea that Ed Wilson really was kind of a rule breaker and someone who had a willingness to ruffle feathers. And I also like the idea that he wasn't proprietary about his work and the way he transitioned from what we think of as a true scientist in the field studying ants to becoming both a scientist and a true advocate for the natural world. And I would say the last thing was that Richard said something to the effect of science doesn't show us what we want the world to be. It shows us what it is. I also love that, especially in the context of science coming under threat in the current political climate. But I have to say that Richard's optimism for the future is something that we really both share. So on the flip side, even though it can feel really challenging and discouraging, his optimism really resonated with me. It did with me, too. And I really think being optimistic but realistic is key to moving forward with his work and really honoring his legacy. So whether you're like us and biophilia resonates with you every day, or you're a young student of biology, Ed Wilson is a towering figure whose life and contributions cannot be minimized. I completely agree. And I think Richard is such a wonderful person to help tell that story. So we highly encourage our listeners to head to our show notes, grab a copy of Richard's book, Scientist, E.O. Wilson, A Life in Nature. It's absolutely fascinating, truly has themes that speak to everyone, whether you're passionate about science, history, or the environment. Exactly. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. All right. Talk to you later, Jennifer. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Give us a five-star rating and please leave us a review. It really goes such a long way towards helping us reach a wider audience and sharing these amazing interviews and solutions with the world. Absolutely. So thanks so much for following and reviewing the podcast. And we'll be back with another amazing interview in two weeks. You're now a part of the biophilic movement. Yeah.